The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence-based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense or good judgment. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of their employer or employees. Okay, welcome back to the Walker County EMS Podcast. Again, my name is Chris Toman. I'm a paramedic and assistant director here in Walker County. And once again, joined by Rachel Parker, our EMS director, and Dr. Jay Kovar, our medical director. And good afternoon. So good afternoon. this episode um, titled Rethinking Epi in Cardiac Arrest. And I think this has been something that's probably a long time coming on a few people's minds, but we want to go into some of the reasons why we've been doing what, we've, what we're doing and what does the future look like for epinephrine and cardiac arrest? Well, if you look at the, the basic premise of what we're trying to do in, in dealing with cardiac arrest calls, you kind of start with some, some pretty simple thoughts. One is that I said life is about volume and flow. Uh, you can boil almost everything down to that. And when you're talking about physiology and what's going on with the patient, you've got to have volume and flow. Basically, a volume and flow of air and blood. You got to have air, and you got to move it in and out. You got to have blood, and you got to move it round and round. And that's really about as simple as as you can explain it. And it also helps bolster everything else we're going to talk about. But when you're talking about cardiac arrest, I think you're you're talking about a whole menagerie of things that basically result in pulseless, non-breathing patient. You go to your patient, and you know the, we call cardiac arrest. Uh, that from from multiple etiologies, from uh, anything that erupts volume and flow. If you bleed out, you're in cardiac arrest. If you if you asphyxiate, you're in cardiac arrest. If your uh, your blood pressure is uh, um, uh, bottoms out, etc., you're in cardiac arrest. We can't feel a pulse. We don't see you breathing. You're not taking your volume, and you're not moving it around. So when you look at the the reasons and, and how to treat cardiac arrest, you really need to kind of break things into what type of cardiac arrest are you talking about. Um, the causes uh, for cardiac arrest, I mean, there, there are multiple. A lot of them are directly related to the, the heart. I mean, coronary artery disease is a uh, big issue. The, uh, the ischemia from uh, bad flow of uh, coronary blood and bad oxygen delivery to the heart muscle um, is going to cause muscle injury. That muscle injury can result in dysfunction where the muscle doesn't uh, push blood out well. It can result in uh, lack of coordination of uh, muscle activity leading to dysrhythmias, uh, bradycardia, uh, serious tachycardias, and even uh, ventricular fibrillations. There's structural problems that cause cardiac arrest, uh, uh, valve problems, uh, occlusions, uh, toxins, external sources. Uh, A lot of different things can cause the cardiac arrest. So what we're trying to do is take a big lump of uh, conditions and approach them in a logical way of things that are going to make 
sense and try to gather information as quick as possible to figure out exactly what what is the problem. Is this a primary pump problem? Is it an oxygen delivery problem? Uh, is there something structural going on? Is there something electrical going on? Chemical, toxicologic? All those things have to be kind of determined in a really, really quick period of time. And and given all of those etiologies Dr. Kovar just said, typically I feel like there's been one mainstay of CPR for years and years and years, and that was per ACLS guidelines was one milligram of epi, IV or IO every three to five minutes. Um, and so what evidence is there really um, out there uh, as, far as, as far as any sort of RCTs, randomized control trials or placebo trials that have showed any, any benefit to support using epinephrine one milligram IV or IO every three to five minutes? Well, you have to go back and look at how a lot of what we do got started. And I, I think there was a push in the uh, late 60s, early 70s to do something uh, because there really wasn't any effective uh, resuscitation treatment. Uh, and like so many things, uh, particularly trauma, a lot of really smart people sat around and said, hey, uh, I think this is the problem and why don't we do this? And we just kind of went forward and we tried it. So over the last 50, 60 years, we've been trying different things to see what works. We've been kind of rethinking and reinventing and, and tweaking a little bit. Now, uh, the, the basic ACLS algorithm for cardiac arrest, I mean, has included epinephrine since the, the start. Uh, again, epinephrine is the synthetically produced um, adrenaline uh, that our body makes in response to stress. Uh, and the idea behind epinephrine is to get more blood going uh, to the body, to the brain, to the heart. Uh, a, a heart that is injured, sick, damaged, needs more oxygen, needs more blood flow. Uh, therefore, one of the ways to improve that is to elevate the, the blood pressure, which is going to increase the coronary perfusion pressure, which is going to make the patient uh, more efficient in, with every heartbeat. Uh, it's going to help combat uh, the... The, the toxins, uh, the hypoxia, the, the dysrhythmia, it's anything that we can do to get more blood going to the heart is going to give the heart a better opportunity to, to respond to treatments. Uh, it by itself really doesn't do anything uh, as far as uh, countering uh, cardiac arrest. The only time it would counter cardiac arrest is when there's not a true cardiac arrest and it's only just a pulsing patient that uh, the blood pressure is too low for you to palpate. Uh, again, uh, and there are few instances where a pure presser is, is indicated. And so I feel like, and, and you were part of some of these uh, trials and, and, and things in the late 80s and early 90s, the question not necessarily anymore was, is epi good or bad? It was, okay, when or how much? And so they played around with timing and dosing. I mean, I, I've read things all the way up to double-digit doses of mm -hmm. Oh, I've, I've epinephrine. Given, you know, I can remember 14, 15 milligrams right. of epinephrine as a, as a push. So, uh, again, it, it, it's been trial and error. I mean, it's, you know, if a little bit's good, a whole lot more ought to be a whole lot better. And uh, I, I was part of a lot of the high-dose epinephrine resuscitation trials when I was in training. And, and I absolutely can resuscitate a rock. Uh, <laughs> the problem is, is they remain a rock. Right. And you don't get any kind of meaningful outcome. Uh, some of the... Uh, original support for a lot of the things we did were based on, did it work? Did your patient come out of cardiac arrest? Did we ab ab abort that rhythm? Did we get a pulse back? 
Uh, and then it became uh, about now we have this population that before was dead. Uh, now we've resuscitated them. we got a pulse back. And what happens to them? And as we have more and more of these people, we found out that we were, we were not really doing any long-term good. These people would return uh, uh, and have a spontaneous circulation. A lot of times that would not last and it would go back into the uh, condition that caused the arrest in the first place. Or if we were able to uh, avert uh, that problem, whether it was just an airway problem, whether it was just a rhythm problem, uh, those patients, you know, went on uh, to kind of suffer and die because of the anoxia uh, and the, the hyperdynamic drive from all the drugs that we gave them before. Um, so it's now the focus is more in meaningful outcomes rather than I got a pulse back. Because as far as EMS was concerned, Right. That, that's all we would see unless you had a really good relationship with your hospital and got good HDE data back and outcome data. You saw if you got ROSC either in the ER or prior to the ER, you saw ROSC. And so that led to a lot of like, well, there is evidence that Epi gives you a lot of ROSC. But like you said, is this a survival to hospital discharge with any sort of neurological function? Or is this someone who now is in a persistent vegetative state that, yes, they have a heartbeat and a pulse. And that is absolutely it. Um so is that necessarily a benefit? Yeah, like I said, it's, uh, it, <laughs> it ain't a calf rope. Uh, your, your work has just uh, begun. Uh, there are a lot of things that need to happen. I mean, there's been those cases where we've, we've worked the patients, we've followed our, our basic uh, standard algorithms, and, and we have a pulse back. And we look at each other and we go like, oh, no, now what? Now what do we do? Uh, we've had a lot of research and a lot of focus on the now what do we do kind of aspect of that. A lot of the uh, uh, studies, you know, 10 years ago with, uh, with what is now targeted temperature management in hypothermia kind of focused at what do we do with these patients post-resuscitative care. EMS didn't focus on post-resuscitative care. That was really the hospital's job. Uh, like anything else, the soonest that we can recognize, you know, the patient and what their needs are, once we reestablish a pulse, the, the, the better we think the outcome can be uh, for those patients. And so, so seeing what they've done in the past, and they haven't tried everything with Epi, there's still some work to be done. So that's kind of where we want to try to fit ourselves in as meaning what, what else can we try? And whether that's messing with dosing, messing with timing, or even messing with delivery of the drug and, and you know, the, the duration of that. So what we're trialing here and going to start um, in the next month is going to be uh, like a, an epi drip, um, not your standard epi drip like you would give for your shock patient or anything, but um, our, our plan is to put a milligram of epi into a thousand ml bag and run that at 50 mics per kilo per minute. Um, and over the course of 20 minutes, you would get eventually one milligram of epi. And we're going to do that after starting with just a one bolus dose of epi um, on board. And then we start our drip. And so we see there being multiple benefits to this um, as far as clinical outcomes uh, related to the epi administration. Um, that remains to be seen. But, Rachel, what do you think as far as from the, the crew standpoint and um, the, the benefit of being able to set an epi drip and, and then move on? So I think first it's important to note that the way in general that cardiac arrests pre-hospital have been worked um, – historically has changed significantly over the last several years, um, particularly here within the past year alone, the way we were working cardiac arrests has significantly changed. So we went from, you know, 
encountering our cardiac arrest patient, loading them up as fast as possible, getting them into our safe space, which was our truck, um, taking them to the hospital as fast as possible, not really focusing on good compressions and good airway management and H's and T's, right? Like we just wanted somebody else to have that patient. And if we got ROSC, what we considered ROSC, we were happy with that. Right. Um, a year ago, we switched to the way we're doing CPRs now with implementing field terminations. Um, and in general, just working that patient for a solid 20 minutes where we find them when the scene is safe and, and time allows for that. Um, our ROSC rates, if we're just going to go off of ROSC, have improved significantly just doing the best CPR we can do. And so I think since everybody's mastered working a cardiac arrest really well in the field in one place, um, adding this new component will allow them to um, focus more on not just what do we do every couple minutes, you know, what do I do with my hands, but looking at the bigger picture, you know, here's here's a bolus of epi and now I'm going to hang a drip. Now, what can we, what can we immediately start addressing? Like, let's address our blood sugar. Like, do we think this is an overdose? Do we think, you know, it's hypothermia because it's 14 degrees outside, whatever the case may be, we have freed up our ability to focus on the patient and what we might be missing big picture wise, um, while still doing the traditional epi, um, not doing any harm, but sustaining that epi over a period of time and also freeing us up to focus on other aspects of patient care that we might have been missing. The, the, the cognitive offloading is, I think, the biggest benefit from, from the crew member standpoint. And we've been on several CPRs as far back as I can remember where they're clock watching because, mm -hmm. all right, get ready in 30 seconds, we're going to give our next epi and there'll be someone who his sole job is to time keep, right? Yeah. And like, the code hey, did recorder. You write down that that right. epi that I just gave, right? Yeah. Down the time of that epi. Because everyone wants their documentation to look like every three to five minutes they gave that epi. Um, if even if that's the only good thing they did was to do it per ACLS guidelines versus using that medic mind to start to think about H's and T's because that's what's going to fix the guy. Yeah, right. it, it came off as you know, just watching that checklist is was really kind of strange because again so i've probably been taking acls courses since i was 15 years old which is a few years but it never really hit me till i you know went to medical school and studied a lot of physiology and pharmacology that, that a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense i mean it can make sense you're following the rules and and i think that uh, uh the american heart association acls has, has done a tremendous amount of good but again, it's it, it's a basic primer. It really doesn't it isn't focused at at the, at the thinking clinician as to to try to figure out how to get the patient out of the out of the problem. The body knows what's going on. The body knows what happened. We don't. We have to investigate. We have to look. Try to figure out what got the patient in that situation, you know, in, in the first place. How we manage that entire situation really, really matters. I mean, you can see in the last several years, there's been a focus on airway, you know, and, and, and the focus has been to focus away from airway a right. lot of times. It's like you're spending a lot of time, you're trying to get that definitive into tracheal tube, and you're not focusing on the dysrhythmia. You're not focusing on the poor perfusion. You're not focusing on the, the, the toxin that, that's causing your patient's initial condition. Probably stopping uh, compressions to get that ET tube also. We've seen all, that. All of those. Uh, we, we Again, this started as theoretical, and it went 
to a program that could be easily distributed and digested by the general population. Mm-hmm. Again, CPR, ACLS for the most part is, you know, for, for lifeguards and Girl Scouts and things like that too. It's, it, you know, we're, we're thinking professionals and you, you, you see the evolution of this. And we started uh, doing, you know, human research, investigations, animal research, and we know what happens to, to cerebral blood flow during CPR. We know what's happened to coronary blood flow. We know what happens to the muscle. We know whether the valves open or close or not. We know what happens when we bind the abdomen. We know what happens when we do this drug or that drug. We know what happens if we put two defibrillators on instead of one defibrillator. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things that, that were being looked at to try to, to, to make some improvement. And if you look at uh, CPR since its inception, we haven't made a big impact. Uh, for <laughs> a lot of people in cardiac arrest remain in cardiac arrest and die. We're, we're trying to find those, those quickly fixable uh, things that, that can avoid uh, that death. Airway obstruction issues, uh, cardiac um, uh, uh, defibrillation, uh, a lot of these things are, are really what makes a big impact. And the rest of it is so many other etiologies uh, you know, a, a bad heart with bad valves and bad arteries uh, that, that, that's been injured over years and years of, you know, hypertension and diabetes and other problems is not going to restart, you know, like, like it, it does if you follow the, the manual. Uh, the body doesn't do that. We're, we're really trying to find something new and better that helps the patient and doesn't add to, you know, the bad outcomes. Yeah, and I, I, I firmly believe and have for a long time that we, as EMS, being an emergency medicine sort of subspecialty, we should not be running a cardiac arrest the same way that a podiatrist or a proctologist runs it. And I, like Dr. Kovar said, I believe that's what ACLS was kind of made as this broad brush blanket way. I mean, that's not our wheelhouse. We're different thinkers than they are. And they are, you know, their thought process is justified for what they do. They do that for a reason, but ours is different. And when we can think differently we should be acting differently when i I watch people you know watching the clock and and you know uh, over the years and working in different situations and you work in a cardiac arrest and uh, i would say okay well let's give another milligram of epinephrine and the nurse is like no it hasn't been five minutes yet like what uh so like there's something magical about checking the boxes and, and and following the algorithm uh and then you apply the pharmacology and it's like well you know the epi is good for like maybe three minutes so what are we doing for the other two minutes you're making me wait and you know right. i would uh, again you want to you want to be you know at the at the top of your game you don't want to be just a you know shorter cook you really want to be a, you know the, the, this brilliant chef that knows what's going on exactly. and knows exactly what the patient needs and how you how you formulate these things up uh, so, you know, the, the tried and true, you know, milligram of epi every five minutes uh, till ooh, whenever. I mean, in the past, it was like, you know, whenever you felt like stopping, you know, rigor mortis is a good time to come stop. Home. Um, but the bottom line is now we, we've, we're trying to make sure we've, 
you know, got in title, we're following in title, we're making sure that, you know, we're, we're not interrupting, you know, our chest compressions. I mean, I started out with the, the basically, you know, what, with the 15 and two, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and then uh, guess what? Uh, we're starting over every time we stop compressions. You, mm-hmm. you go back down and if you generated any forward flow, it's gone now and you have to get that back. Um, and we really didn't know this. We, we should have known this intuitively. We really know this when we demonstrated this in, in human studies and animal studies, et cetera. It's like, yeah, you're, you're really chest compressions. Don't do a whole lot, particularly if you're stopping them, you know, ever, you know, 10 or 15 compressions. And I think that's where we are really lucky as a service and our patient population is really lucky that we do have Lucas's on every vehicle. Um, so we're not worrying about being fatigued or stopping compressions to move the patient. Our compressions are, the interruptions are very limited here, um, which is, we have that definitely on our side. And I think with the, you know, the standard epi every three to five minutes, I think that's like the, the safety blanket for all the other, you know, everybody kind of except ERs and EMS, we should really be you know, focusing on what we can do differently, like you said. Yeah, we could get into all the ACLS drugs mm-hmm. and probably spend hours <laughs> on, on podcasts, et cetera. And uh, there, there's always gray areas and there's always some little benefit. Uh, but for the majority, just broadly applied mm-hmm. to everybody, it's it's not doing anything and, and it could potentially do some harm uh, in, in certain situations. So what we're, we're really want to do is to make sure the patient gets what they need, you know, when they need it, uh, and, and to give you the tools to do that. Now, um, if your patient in cardiac arrest is in ventricular fibrillation, they don't need you to intubate them. They don't need you to give them epi. What they need is they need to meet the power company mm-hmm. and uh, correct that uh, situation. If your patient is, again, choking, they don't need you to start an IV and give them epi. You know, the bottom line is there, there are multiple different situations, but we want to, for you to give the patient what they need. So we've, we've kind of outlined how we're going to use, um, uh, the changes, uh, to, to be a little more logical. Uh, so we still believe that epinephrine is, um, has some benefit in the undifferentiated patient. You don't really know what's going on. It does uh, cause some vasoconstriction. It does, you know, uh, generate the heart to squeeze a little harder. Uh, those may or may not be significant parts of your patient's problem. But if you're going to do epi, you should probably do it early and not delay it unless there's something else that needs to be done first, like defibrillation. Uh, and then Probably a steady state is more beneficial uh, than these, you know, up and down camel hump every five minute big doses of epi. Uh, we can establish, you know, that uh, if the patient does have return uh, circulation, um, then a lot of times we're at a loss to what to do if they can't support their pressure and we're having to start a presser. Or we see the big doses of epi and the patient's resuscitated and now they have a heart rate of 210 and a blood pressure of 240 over 150 and that's not good for the brain that's squishy already from the cardiac arrest. So there's a lot of things that we did 
to make the heart go back uh, into a normal rhythm that really hurt uh, the patient's chance for meaningful outcomes. And so kind of the, the elephant in the room we'll talk about is the other end of this equation when we do take them to definitive care, whether that they're still in arrest or not. What do you think is a, a good way to manage or, or mitigate some of the response that hopefully we don't get, but probably will from the hospitals that wonder what you have only given one milligram of epi and it's been 30 minutes and you have like, why? I mean, cause I, I know that ACLS seems to be almost like a dogmatic approach to CPR sometimes. And some of those people cling to it like religion and it has to be done. It, it, it above all else, it has to be done. So well, it's habit. I think what, it's yeah, what's a good way in changing the well, mindset it's, it's, too. it's more, more security blanket than habit. Right. You know, you, you obviously, you know, have done the right thing if you followed the outline and anything else is potentially the wrong thing if they don't really understand. And, and that's why we really have to back up everything that we do with, with some, some good evidence, some good studies, some good information, and then to follow what we do, uh, not just make a change and then forget it till somebody else you know, pushes us in, the, in another direction. So some, some good communication from uh, from the leadership side of this toward to the hospitals kind of getting out ahead of this, because what we don't want to happen was what happened with sea collars and backboards when we stopped backboarding every patient. The ERs lost their mind. Right. And then when we started giving ketamine for pain control, they lost their mind because I don't think they were briefed on it and in a thoughtful way that kind of made them feel comfortable about it or as comfortable as they can feel. And so it was more of a surprise and um, a lot of them probably took exception to what we were doing, but I think that the prep work wasn't done. And I think if we can lay some groundwork ahead of time and get out in front of this, I think that's a good way to mitigate any sort of negative response from our, our hospital partners that we're taking these folks to. Yeah, that communication of what we're really doing, not only for the patient, but for them, mm-hmm. uh, there, there is a lot of things that, that we do, we can provide that, that takes a load off of the hospital, off of the nursing staff, and even the, the, the physician and other providers there too. Uh, so we really need to communicate, you know, what what the overall benefit is. And, uh, you know, it, it is not the cardiologists and the, the, the transplant surgeons and the, the, the cardiovascular folks that have advanced CPR. It has been EMS, it's been the pre-hospital people and the people in the pit in the ER that have made these changes that are having some meaningful outcomes. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is the education of just what EMS does. I think um, that gets kind of lost sometimes, you know. I think there's still this um, thought process of, well, you just pick them up and bring them here. So without having those meaningful conversations of this is what we're capable of, this is what our thought processes are, this is what our education processes are, um, without without addressing that, you know, we are going to get those questions of, well, you only gave one epi in 30 minutes. And that's what, that's what the focus is going to be on. If, if we're not doing that education piece as well. Right. And and in the past, it has taken three to five years for that pendulum to finally swing to where everyone is comfortable with it. And I think we're lucky enough. We have good relationships with our hospital partners to where they, they truly view us as part of the whole patient care team. Um, and, that's evident by the outcome data they give us really quickly um, and just the overall communication. So, um, you know, I I think, I think this is something that, I mean, we're definitely not the only ones to be doing this. There's a few folks that are doing it, but um, everyone seems to be doing that initial dose and drip a little different. So tweaking some minor things. Um, 
but there's not much left to be done, I think, with Epi before, um, you know, we've kind of tried every everything from dose to delivery to time. Um, so we're kind of filling in those last gaps. And yeah. Dr. Kovar, maybe you can, um, just for a reminder, you know, the question's been brought up, well, how much is too much Epi if we're, you know, if we're going to work this, this patient on scene and maybe they don't have a good outcome, like, you know, how many Epis or too many Epis or when should I stop the Epi? What are some of the... Um, long-term, you know, effects of maybe that patient that we get ROSC on that um, does kind of survive as a rock. Um, what what are the, the long-term effects of all of this, like, abundant, you know, amounts of epi that, that we give these, you know, 13, 14, 15 doses of epi that they get, and then they're on, you know, however many pressors. Yeah. Well, how much is enough? My mother told me enough was enough um, <laughs> more than once. Uh, part of it is, uh, again, what, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? I mean, we were really epinephrine is, is not a lazaroid. It's not going to resuscitate the patient. It's not going to do anything lazaroid other like than it. to give you, you know, better coronary perfusion. Right. If your heart is truly the problem, and like I said before, most cardiac arrests, I mean, multiple etiologies and multiple cofactors. And a lot of these folks are not just, you know, the young, healthy 30-year-old with, with, the, with the widow-maker lesion. A lot of these are old, diabetic, hypertensive cancer patients with a lifetime of body abuse right. that this is the final common pathway this is this is the way it was intended and we're kind of like we're we're trying to avert that um so again epi is the reason we're not just going to trash it because we don't know what the patient's initial problem is and it may be beneficial and that's why i don't want to go away from um oh just delaying you know, if we're going to use epinephrine, we should use it up front at the, in the appropriate uh, uh, time window. Um, and, and bolusing, getting that dose in there, trying to get the levels up from a pharmacologic uh, standpoint is a good way to start. But then you can follow that with a drip, and you can maintain a certain level. The problem with too much epi uh, is when you do reestablish circulation is, again, you've got injured tissue and particularly injured brains and that's usually what keeps us from having any real successful outcomes is the the you got the heart back the heart's good we you know it was a, a cocaine overdose and the guy went into v-fib and we shocked him out of it and his heart's actually pretty healthy but i mean his brain is uh, uh too far injured the the uh, the drive uh sympathetic drive uh with high doses of epinephrine um, really, again, on an injured brain, the brain can't auto-regulate uh, its blood flow. It causes uh, ischemia, edema, uh, you know, microstrokes, a lot of issues with with too high of a dose of epinephrine. Usually, what it takes, you know, to to get some of these folks back, uh, and then you're dealing with that. So, hopefully, the drip is gonna. Um, kind of alleviate that, that excessive uh, uh, dosing, uh, it, it will do its job, uh, and it can be discontinued or adjusted uh, when it's no longer needed. Hopefully we won't get that hyperdynamic status after we get resuscitation in some of those folks. Right. And I'll ask kind of one last question, even though I probably know the answer, but for clarity's sake, um, 
This is for cardiac arrest only. This is not an, uh, a guideline for traumatic arrest. Correct. 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 Uh, and, and like anything else, I mean, everything you de- deserves, you know, some investigation. And uh, again, a traumatic arrest for the most part is generally from blood loss, volume loss. Again, you got to have volume and flow. Uh, you've either got a pump problem, a tank problem, or you know your your, your pipes aren't uh, are being filled, or they're they're too dilated, or uh, etc. Uh, epinephrine, you know, uh, c- could potentially give you a small bump uh, in um, in pressure uh, and and heart rate, but again, the body's already in in, in trauma in those situations, kind of going at maximal. So all you're really potentially adding is. Uh, 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 more injury uh, doesn't seem to uh, affect the outcome if you don't fix the, the primary problem, which is generally controlling the blood loss, replacing the blood loss, uh, you know, and, and again, managing any of those complications with uh, airway ventilation. All right. So hopefully we'll, um, at least over the next year uh, plus, be able to get some some measurable outcome data so that we can start to put together some information and and hopefully, um, you know, get some of this information out to to anyone else that might find it useful, um, and see what see what comes from that. So, well, we hope this uh, listening to this brings some questions that mm-hmm. you can kind of bring forward. It's it's really not uh, the end all in the discussion. Uh, like I said, really really good ideas come from you know really investigating and thinking the process through even questions that seem a little silly actually turn out to be some of the brightest ones asked. Absolutely. And I think just like anything with EMS, this is, it's an evolving, um, concept. It's pretty fluid. Nothing stays the same. Um, so this is definitely a good foundation and a starting point. And, um, will this probably be adapted and changed? Probably. Um, as the information dictates. To. yeah, It absolutely yeah. has to evolve. Everything's yeah. going to evolve. Uh, we are, this is the, <laughs> the next step in the evolution. And yeah. all of these things are really also geared and considered is, is to make what we do, what you do, easier. Or when you look at the whole gamut of all of these things, we're not adding things and adding things and adding things. We're trying to make things reasonable. You know, uh, pump it on somebody's chest for 45 minutes uh, and, and multiple doses, et cetera, is, is, is a futile effort. Uh, again, given people targets, given people meaningful interventions, uh, and, and an endpoint. An endpoint mm-hmm. is very important in whatever we do. And that's why we push, you know, monitoring, seeing what you're doing, seeing what the response is, following your end title. If you don't get a response in a reasonable amount of time, you know, your chance for anything meaningful as far as recovery uh, is it, pretty slim. So uh, there's a time when, uh, again, uh, we don't win. And right. th- that's the way it goes. Yeah. That's a conversation for another podcast yeah. on what happens then. Because, and we'll be looking at it. I think what gets measured gets improved. So we will be constantly measuring all of this and looking for ways to improve it. Um, pretty much constantly so mm-hmm. all right you guys if y'all have any questions or comments please um, send us an email and we will see y'all on the next episode